Church. This is the reading of the Word of God. 1 Peter 3, verse 13 to 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that, you, that, that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Thank you so much, Zita, for reading the word for us. Did you guys see the old switcheroo? It's going quite smooth in our house at the moment, I have to be honest. I said earlier that my name is Reino. Lasejo also said that I have the privilege of uh, preaching the word this morning, and that is exactly what I am going to do. So, uh, guys, we are in a six-part series. This is uh, number three, in which we spell out and focus on who we are and what we are about as a church plant. So I said earlier in this gathering, we are definitely a gospel-centered, disciple-making, transcultural church. That is what we are, and that is who we are. These six weeks will help us to understand how we want to be this gospel-centered, disciple-making, transcultural church. So just to recap a little bit, we uh, said the first week that the church is a family. And there's our line. This is the best way that we can describe it. The church is a family. We believe that we are all adopted into this family by God's grace. And we want to live like a healthy and a unified family. That was week one. Last week, we said to each other that the church is a missional community. We stated we are a missional community. And we said we enter into specific spaces places and groups of people in our neighborhoods and networks in order to love them, serve them, and witness to them. Now I'm going to give you the end goal even before my sermon, just to keep that in mind as to where we will land today. So today our theme is we have hope in suffering. And this is the best way for me to describe it. We are willing to suffer together because our suffering is tied to our witness as a church. You'll see this in just a couple of minutes. In our suffering, we have a living hope in us. We share in our suffering with vulnerability while we believe in a glorious future with no suffering. It's all biblical. I know you can't see the footnotes now, but just give me some time and I'll unpack First Peter and you see how this comes to us straight from the text. I don't know if you've uh, ever seen this podcast or heard of it. Uh, It's called How I Built This. It's an American podcast uh, that is about innovators and entrepreneurs and idealists. And the whole podcast is about telling their stories behind the movements they built, right? So that's the leading question in every single podcast is, so how did this happen? Uh, A guy named Raz does all the interviews. And that's pretty much what he asks all people. Now, many other name brands are probably only known in the United States. But as an example, a popular brand is Fitbit, right? Everyone kind of knows what a Fitbit is or you've seen a Fitbit before. So you would ask someone like the founder of Fitbit, dude, how did this happen? How did you get here? And how did you build your enterprise? Now, what's interesting in many of these stories, I'm not saying all of them, but what's interesting in many of these stories is there's kind of uh, the same golden thread running through them. 
And that is, uh, I, it was a humble beginning for me, right? Um, I had humble roots. Uh, I was kind of broke at the time. I was really desperate to do something or to make an impact. It asked everything of me, like I put everything into it and I just hoped it works, right? I went for the jugular. And all of these stories also has something that people wanted. So the people will say, well, I knew that there was something that people needed and I just decided to go for it, sacrifice everything I have and then make it available to them. I had an unorthodox business model. I really didn't think it through. I didn't go by the textbook. I just went for it and I saw remarkable growth. So here's the question. If Raz would interview Jesus and he would ask Jesus, okay, so humble beginnings, 12 guys, you died. Let's just be honest about that one. Got raised from the dead. You filled 120 people with your spirit. Thousands became hundreds of thousands, became millions, and now it's billions, right? Tell us, Jesus, how did you do this? What do you guys think the answer would be? I think that would be a really interesting uh, uh, interview. And I also think that we might find many of what we find on the podcast in Jesus' story himself. I came from humble roots, right? A place called Nazareth means from the sticks or from the woods, you know. But I had something that people wanted. I had eternal life, right? I had hope. I had resurrection from the dead. I had something called salvation. I had forgiveness. I had grace. And even though I came from a humble background, I knew that this is what people wanted. And here's what I did. I sacrificed everything. And not only everything, I even sacrificed myself. Yes, I did it by an unorthodox plan, right? I called 12 guys who actually on face value shouldn't even be friends with each other, but we saw wild, wild growth. Or if you would ask the disciples or the apostles, you know, in the book of Acts, so guys, how did you do this? They would probably tell you, well, we did it in humility. Uh, we did it by doing good to other people. And we did it by speaking a message that people desperately wanted to hear. We did it by speaking a message of hope and of forgiveness and of fulfillment and of grace and of meaning and of purpose. And while we did it, we really experienced a lot of suffering. That's how the church was built, guys. So if you just think about the words I mentioned now, humble, sacrifice, suffering, that's actually not popular words for us, right? But if there was such a podcast in which Jesus and the apostles spoke and they used these words, that would be the words that really got me thinking, right? That would be the words that I'm pondering. Like if you really want to draw a crowd of people into the vision that you proclaim or into, you know, your own mission that you've put out, using these kind of words can actually feel a little bit dangerous, right? Because it's not popular words, but it is biblical words. So what I want to do in the beginning of the sermon is just to give you a very simple summary of this passage. And then we'll dive into one very, very specific thing. Okay, I'll get to that now. So let me just stop sharing my screen for a second here. So here's the gist of the passage that Zita just read. Peter writes to Christians at the beginning of centuries of persecution. Right? And we know that now looking back on history. Peter writes, and this is kind of a golden thread through 1 Peter and 2 Peter, about a living hope. Something that is real, 
and something that is in the hearts of the people of God, right? So we'll circle back to that in just a few seconds. From verse 13 onwards to 17, he touches on various aspects of Christian suffering, right? What does it look like? Why do we do it? And how do we go about it? And what I want you to see, the most important thing, and we said this in our slide in the beginning, is that this passage ties suffering to our witness. And that means, plainly stated, that Christians are to share their hope with others in all circumstances. And this hope is to be accompanied by a beautiful life of goodness. Let me read this line again, because that's pretty much the summary of my whole sermon. Christians are to share their hope with others in all circumstances, and this hope is to be accompanied by a beautiful life of goodness. And you'll see now, as we go through this portion of scripture, it'll become clear to us what this actually means. Now, what I want you to see, actually just kind of a sidebar, is that Peter doesn't give us a formula for how to witness to others. Do you guys see that? I know many of us are pragmatic. Many of us love bullets. Many of us love five steps, four Ps, six Ss, four Es. You know, it would be great if Peter would go, guys, so here's the four E's of evangelism, right? Boom, 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 boom. That's what you do. And then you'll be able to convert someone to Christianity. But he doesn't. Paul rather focuses, and this is an important one for us at least, as professing Christians, as he focuses on the heart and on the life of the faithful witnesses. Right? So he speaks to us about the way we go about it. So the heart of evangelism is tied to the lifestyle of the evangelist. Let me use a simple example. I know it's not necessarily applicable for everyone, but you've seen it before. Think about someone who just got engaged, right? There's no other words coming from their mouths as the fact that they just got engaged, right? Flip to Instagram, rings and kisses. Flip to Facebook, rings and kisses. WhatsApp profile picture, rings and kisses. WhatsApp status, I love you so, I love you so, I love you so. That actually sounds like a chorus of a song, right? People can't stop talking about it, even though, right, they might be facing traffic. It's not a problem. I'm engaged. Even though they have to wait long in a queue, it's not an issue. I'm engaged. Even though you got the wrong order at a restaurant, that's also fine. Do check it, check it. He liked it and he put a ring on it, right? That's something we talk about. Why? Because we love it. And we treasure it. It's dear to us. We revere this thing. We hope in it. We are excited about it. And exactly in the same way, if we love Jesus deeply, guys, and this is a mirror that we ought to look into, we love Jesus deeply, we will share this hope that is within us. Even though we might face external challenges or sufferings or trials around us this quote is an important one for me so i just want to share my screen for a second here and just show it to you it's uh, by a new testament scholar his name is tom schreiner he says the inner and outer life are inseparable for what happens within will inevitably be displayed to all especially when one suffers so that's a really good litmus test for us. Not only do we have hope and joy when things are going awesome, but what comes out of us when things are going hard and when the going really, really gets tough. So that's the summary of this passage. 
Now, I think the important next question for us to ask at least is what kind of external challenges were these Christians facing in Peter's day? And what kind of challenges will we face in our day? Right? Because let's be honest, we don't live in the first century anymore. Culture has shifted, the world has shifted, the way we go about our daily lives has shifted. So what was the unique challenges they faced and what's the unique challenges that we face in our day? So when it comes to the context that Peter wrote in, and I mean, I can nerd out on the history here, which I'm not going to do, unless you guys ask me in the feedback and then I'll just hammer it. But in Peter's day, it was really an hostility or a hostility to the gospel. Why? Because proclaiming the gospel, believing the gospel, accepting the gospel, appropriating it for yourself, becoming part of this family, being sent as part of this family, that was all about allegiance, right? So you pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ himself. And that was in a world where rule and power was really, really important, limited commodities, right? So I wanted more power because I wanted to rule even more efficiently. So you will pledge your allegiance to me and to no one else. So Christians who pledge their allegiance to Jesus Christ and not the emperor or not the Caesar were persecuted because the moment someone pledged their allegiance to someone else, the person in power obviously felt threatened. And that's where their persecution comes from. Now, we don't have that, right? We can pledge our allegiance to Jesus Christ as many times and on as many platforms as we want. We live in a world that says that we have a freedom of religion. So what would our challenges be, right? If we can have our front door open in our house at the moment and we can sing Unge Zunge Zile Nanga Pambili here together as a group with no one persecuting us, what is our unique challenges then? I think we won't have a hostility to the gospel, but I think we will have a hardness to the gospel. And we will also have a happiness without the gospel. Did you guys see how I went hostility, snap, now I have to get two more H's, right? So I went hardness on the one side and happiness on the other side. I think that's what we will encounter as a church plant, seeking to go, seeking to teach, seeking to baptize, seeking to invite, seeking to evangelize, seeking to reach lost people. I think we will uh, find a segment of people in the context of South Africa that can be deemed to be unchurched people. Right? People who didn't grow up in the context of church, but people who might really not be interested in the church at all. Or people who might say, I'm quite good without the church. I've done it my whole life without the church, and I really don't feel like shaking things up at the moment. That would be something that I would say is a hardness to the gospel. We'll also, in South Africa at least, find a big segment of people who we might call de-churched people. Now, de-churched people are people who probably would say, I've tried it, and I've done it before, and I've seen it, but I'm quite good without it at the moment. I think there's a big segment of people in our context where we want to plant that might have the, I'm quite happy without the gospel at the moment, right? Uh, either my experience as a church wasn't fulfilling, or it was hurtful, or I tried it at least on my own peril and it didn't work, so I'm, I'm not interested. So thank you, you know what I mean? Like, you can carry on and do what you want to do, but I'm quite happy without it. I think that would be our two unique challenges in the world that we live in today. So even though we have different challenges, right, than Peter's audience and the people he writes to, I do think that there are two things that we do share with them. And that is the one is we are strangers in this world. Peter uses the word strangers many times in First Peter. 
meaning we feel a bit odd in this world we live in, right? We are a little bit weird, guys, because we pledge our allegiance to a risen Christ and then allow him through his spirit to change every fiber of our being. And we say, let your will be done and let your kingdom come. Right? We live a life of forgiveness, we live a life of love, we live a life of generosity, we live a life of service, we live a life of sacrifice. Guys, that's not what you will find on the billboard. Right? Can you imagine rolling down the N1 and having one of those container billboards that says, sacrifice is the way to go, sign up today. You know, or when was the last time you surrendered your life completely to something outside of you, right? That's not what we see in marketing material. We rather see the razor that you want that will make you look like Roger Federer right that's the kind of narrative we have in the world being peddled to us at this moment so we are weird and then peter also uses the words sojourners right he says we travelers like we are on our way to somewhere passing through here but it's really about the somewhere where we are that we are excited about but the somewhere that we are excited about informs how we actually sojourn through this world now, I would say that as a new church plant, inviting people into it, sharing the gospel with people, having gospel conversations, and speaking about this hope that is inside of us, we'll circle back to that now, I don't think that we should be surprised if people are clueless when it comes to the Bible. I don't think we should be surprised when people don't uh, uh, um, show interest in it. And I also think just in the world we live in now, especially in a big city, especially in a city that is influenced, right? by the Western world and a world that seems even more anti-faith or anti-Christianity, I think we should even be willing to expect a, a little bit of mockery and a little bit of ridicule and even legal rulings right, that might affect us. I mean, at the moment, if you just Google, are Christians at loggerheads with legislation, right? There are these burning points of legislation wanting to change and Christians saying, guys, if we do this, Right? We'll see a tumble in our community and we'll see a tumble in the lives of our people. We can't do that. Right? That's the world that we live in at the moment. So if that's the world we live in and there's a hardness to the gospel and there's a happiness without the gospel, the question is then, how do we do this? Because when it comes to evangelism, we can't just leave it to a Sunday morning at 10.30 to 12 right? on Zoom to help people understand what the gospel is all about. It can't only be reserved to worship services. It can't only be reserved to paid theologians or clergy. So what should we do? Because remember, back to the engagement illustration, we want to share this, right? We want to tell others about it. And we want others to know it so that they can also experience the same thing that we experience. So I would like to mention three things. I won't double click them. That's something we'll do in the breakout rooms. But I just want to mention three things to you real quick. I think from this passage, this is where we ought to land. How do we do this? Well, we do it by practical goodness. We do it by Christ-centered reverence. And you'll see that I put the, um, the, verse, uh, the verses in reference, therefore you in brackets. And we do it by daily readiness. Practical goodness, Christ-centered reverence, and daily readiness. Okay, so these three things Real quick, like Lasako said, we'll have time to flesh this out and to discuss it in our breakout rooms. Look at the words in verses 13 to 14. Zealous for what is good and suffering for righteousness' sake. I think the best way possibly to say that in local language is have a passion for good deeds, right? <laughs> and accept the possibility that it might bring some suffering. 
while you do good. That's what he says. And for us, I would say that means be a good neighbor. It means be a good friend. Be a good employee. Be devoted to a life of virtue. Live to bless other people. Right? Is that something you wake up in the morning with? Are those opportunities that you look for as you go through daily life? I think we ought to surprise people with acts of kindness and with acts of goodness. I think we need to provoke questions by our lives by living under the Lordship of Christ. Now, this needs some proper application. And let me just say it now so that you can start thinking about it. That will be the main topic of discussion for our breakout rooms. So you can start thinking about it in the meantime. The question for the breakout rooms is, what does a life of practical goodness look like for us here and now? Second thing. Christ-centered reverence. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that's me pronouncing a German name with an Afrikaans accent, right? Quite tough. If you want to go all English, you can go Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've heard that people also pronounce his name in that way. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor, and he had the courage to speak out against Hitler. He had the courage to write about uh, the Nazi regime. And he also actually organized some solid opposition against the Nazi regime. Uh, the Nazi people imprisoned him and they eventually executed him. And here's what made him so courageous. He said the following, ripper of a quote. I actually don't know now why I don't have it on a slide, right? It's definitely slide worthy. He said, those who are afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who fear God have no more fear of men. Can I say that again? Those who are afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who fear God have no more fear of men. I think that's one of the biggest barriers to our witness. is just solid fear of man. Well, guys, how do we, read, how do we overcome that? Right? How do we overcome the fear of man? I think the best way, if you look at this portion of Scripture at least, is just to redirect our fear. Right? God himself should be bigger than any man you would ever approach, any system or institution you would ever approach, any context where you would speak about hope and speak about the gospel. It's really about understanding the holiness of God and having a reverence for him that just strips, of, strips us of our fear of other people. Why on earth would I care about being rejected by a human being if I have the creator God in my vision, right? Why would I ever be, uh, be fearful of being rejected by a council of people or lawmakers or people in authority if I have Jesus Christ called the Lord of Lords, the Almighty One, sending me to do this? It's really the awe of Jesus that we have that makes us a witness for him. And this is something that runs all through the Bible, which I don't have time to expound now, but just know it, right? See God and don't fear others. You can find that in the Old Testament. You can find that in the Gospels. Even Jesus himself did it, right? He just wasn't scared of anyone prosecuting him because he had the Father in his gaze. It was the same in the Church of Acts. It's the same in all the New Testament epistles. And in the end, when the faithful stand before the throne, what do they behold? God himself. And therefore, they are just not scared and they start worshiping him. Third thing, daily readiness. I want you to note the words in verses 15 to 17. Always and anyone. Okay, that's very important. We need to be ready every day to respond to every kind of person. Now, guys, newsflash, there's never a perfect day. Right? For some reason, we have this vibe that 
I'm really in a hurry. I don't have time. I didn't sleep well, not up for it today. For all of us who are married, just got in an argument with my spouse. I really don't want to speak about, <laughs> I really don't want to speak about the hope that's inside of me with you at this point in time, you know, or, oh, the weather is really bad. The storm might be coming. You know, I think I'm just going to check out of this conversation. There's never a perfect day for us to share the hope that is within us. We should rather be ready and say, game on, I'll play. Let's do it. As we close, let me uh, just mention three things that I think Peter gives us to remember while we do this. Okay? So we spoke about uh, a life of practical goodness. We spoke about Christ-centered reverence. And we spoke about daily readiness. As we do this, I think three things are very important. Our subject and our tone and our goal. Subject, tone, and goal. So let me just run through these three and then we'll be done. I want you to see that the word defense in, uh, in verse 15 is actually the Greek word apologia, right? Which is where we find the English word apologetics. Now, the moment you say apologetics, I know that for most of us, the thought comes up of two people neatly dressed, masters in their field, multiple degrees, mic in front of each one's mouth, crowd cheering the one side and cheering the other side massive difficult topic right like a deontological proof of god and then they just go at it right and they have this debate and eventually someone wins and then the christians cheer or the other person wins and then the people who are atheists cheer that's not what you should have in your head right apologia is not about lofty arguments it's about telling why you do what you do it is an explanation and that's really important P uh, peter when he wrote this he did not have lofty arguments in mind he had normal conversations in mind people on the streets people over the fence uh, people in a car people you run into in a hospital or in a shop and here's what he says be ready to explain why christ is more precious than anything that's your subject right the subject is not lofty arguments the subject is the word Hope. Be ready to explain why you have hope beyond the grave. That's it. And that's what he wants us to be ready with. We don't always have to have all the answers to every single question that anyone might ever ask about our faith. But if you tell them about the fact that you are not scared of death and that you are hoping in a salvation that will give you eternal life and you can already know this God now in the present time and that brings you great comfort, why not? Why would you not tell someone about that? That is our subject. Tony Merida, who I look up to, he says, he calls this experiential apologetics. He calls it an apologetics of hope. And he says, it's not about argumentation. It is about adoration. Can I say that again? It's not about argumentation. It's about adoration. So think back to the engagement illustration again. Like, I don't have to tell you why I'm engaged to Marie. I'm just going to tell you how much I love her, right? And how we got to this point and how I'm feeling about her at this point in time. So our subject is important. See it from the text. Secondly, our tone is also very important. Did you spot the word gentleness in verse 15? Gentle, not arrogant, gentle, not ugly and defensive, humble and in reverence. I mean, look to Look at who actually wrote this, right? just for a second. You guys remember Peter, the disciple? <laughs> a little bit of a hothead, 
little bit of a hard heart, right? You leave my Jesus alone. Pulls sword, chops off the ear of. Oh, now I'm in pronunciation trouble again. Malchus or Malgus, ne? Chops off the ear of Malchus. Bah, Jesus goes, Peter, dude, settle down. Heals Malchus. Peter goes, ah, I'm in such a bad space. <laughs> Moments later, he cusses at a young girl at a fire. Like that's Peter, right? Now all of a sudden, this is the Peter that has become a warm and a gentle and a patient and an approachable guy. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, right? He became a gentle man. And now he says to us, we ought to be gentle too in the way that we share the gospel. And then lastly, and this is a real pressure relief point. Our goal is faithfulness. Can I say that again? Our goal is faithfulness. Some people will respond, to, uh, uh, will respond in faith to the gospel and others will not. Some may actually persecute you. What is your call? Is your call to bring in the numbers? Is your call to at least do one a week for the next eight weeks and then exponentially grow it from there? No. Your call is to be faithful to this call to witness. Like that's our goal. So whether people accept the gospel or not, whether people respond to it in faith or not, whether people persecute us or not, it's about our call to be faithful. And then we can leave the results to God. Paul says, maintain a good conscience before God and you're right in the mix. And for us as a new church plant, wanting to grow, wanting to reach people, I think that's really important for us to just take that pressure off of us and to say that we don't witness so that we can reach 50 and then 100 and then 150 and then 250 and plant again. We witness because that is our call to be faithful to it. So let's take off the performance anxiety and the pressure and we just speak faithfully about the hope that lives inside of us. After all, guys, and I land with this, this is what Jesus did. Jesus suffered for doing God's will. You'll actually see that if you just jump one verse in chapter 3. No one suffered more unjustly than Jesus Christ himself. And this is the idea that lies at the heart of Christian ethics, right? Is if you want to save some people, then you should be willing to suffer for them, even though it is unjustly. Think about this, guys. Jesus Christ, God himself, become human, hangs on a cross, open arms, no defense, humble, even humiliated, inviting a response from anyone who wants to. Isn't that just the most beautiful picture of suffering and of sacrifice for us to follow? Jesus says, I love you and I'm giving my life to you. I've got no guarantee that you will respond in faith, but I'm still going to do it. And in doing it, I am inviting a response. Not forcing anything on anyone, but being so compelling in his love for us that he literally changed the world. Think about it, guys. I'm going to die. Got no guarantee that someone's going to believe, but I know full well that my love will compel the hearts of people and they will respond. And 12 became 100, 100 became 3,000 in the first sermon. Thousands became hundreds of thousands. And eventually we are at a global faith that is more than 2 billion people at this point. That's what we're called to do, is following these footsteps of Jesus. He went about doing good. He suffered in view of the glory that he will receive or of the glory to come. He was a gentle savior. We know that from the gospels. People loved being around him. 
He told the weary to come to him, to find rest with him. And through faith in him, we become new creations. And we become people who are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness in this way. So may we live and speak out of an overflow for the love of our Savior. Let me show you our, our little message just once more. We're willing to suffer together because our suffering is tied to our witness as a church. That has been stated. And in our suffering, we have a living hope in us. We share in our suffering with vulnerability while we believe in a glorious future with no suffering. So this is who we are. And this is who we want to be. Let's pursue goodness as a church. Let's revere Jesus and don't fear man. And let's be filled with gospel hope. And let's be ready to share our hope with everyone we encounter. Amen.